your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25 as we finish up that chapter this morning. Matthew chapter 25. Uh, As we turn there, we're going to be picking it up in verse 31, this last section that we haven't yet covered. While you're turning there, Matthew 25 verse 31, um, we've had... Well, I don't know if you're watching the the news just locally, there's been a real spike in COVID in New Hampshire in particular. Uh, I personally know five people in my circle who uh, have COVID at present. So uh, more than I've seen, uh, you know, even through the whole pandemic and just in terms of my own personal circle at once, you know, people over time, you know, have come down with it. Um, so anyways, I just say all that to say, just, you know, be aware of that if you weren't already and, uh, whether you're taking precautions or not, if you're taking precautions, you know, be aware. Um, if you're not taking precautions, at least be aware of those who are trying to. And, uh, you know, some, some have, uh, you know, been, you know, it's been very mild and for others it's been, uh, quite harsh. So, uh, let's be aware of that. These are opportunities to show love and to be, kind and to share the gospel with people, and so we want to continue to do that during these days. So Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, and we'll read down through verse 46. The Son of Man will judge the nations. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels." For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these things will go away into everlasting punishment, excuse me, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
So Lord, add your blessing and the guiding of your spirit to the reading of your word. May our hearts and minds be open and attentive to all that you have for us. Lord, may you bless us as we worship in, in every way, whether it be in our giving or in our musical worship or in just giving our attention to you as we listen to your word. Uh, Lord, and as Jesus talks about this morning and what we do and how we do it and how we serve others, uh, Lord, give us a heart that takes after your heart. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been taking sort of our time going through these two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25. We come to the end of 25 today. And just to refresh your memory here, as we started chapter 24, Jesus was dealing with a question that his disciples had put to him uh, about, you know, what are, what are the end times, Lord? When will these things be? And uh, what are the signs? And so Jesus talked about those things. And we began to talk to you that as Jesus sat there on that day in uh, AD 32, dealing with his disciples, he was speaking of events that would come in sort of the short-term future, the mid-term future, and the long-term future all at once. And he spoke specifically of the time of the tribulation, but he also at points hinted at or spoke of things that would happen before the time of the tribulation and certainly before the time of his second coming. Today we're at the very end of all of that, at the end of chapter 25. And remember last week as we covered the first oh, two-thirds of this chapter, we talked about the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. And in talking about the parable of the ten virgins, we talked about readiness and preparedness and opportunity. And looking to the Lord, being ready, and we talked about the five wise and the five foolish virgins. We talked about uh, how the Jewish wedding was run, but in this particular situation, we were looking at the attendance of the wedding and how their job was to go out and to usher the groom into the bride as the, uh, the, the virgins had that responsibility. And five were wise and were prepared in that time of waiting, knowing that the bridegroom was coming and they had extra oil uh, in containers to keep their lamps burning brightly. And then the five foolish ones were not prepared. And so we talked through that last week. If you missed it, we'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. And then we moved into the parable of the talents, and we talked about how a talent was a weight, but it was also a measure of wages. And as, just as you think in, in our society of denominations, such as, you know, a $1 bill, $5 bill, $20 bill, $100 bill, etc., that a talent was worth 20 years' wage. And so in that parable, we talked about <clears throat> the one who had received five talents, of course, had received 100 years' worth of wage. And they were expected, on behalf of their master, to invest those talents or those wages, and then in the end be able to give a return to their master. And so one was given five talents, one was given two, which was 40 years wages, and one was given one, which was 20 years wages. Any way you slice it, when we think of it in our current terms, that's a lot of money. And so there's a lot of responsibility as well. And, and the parable of the talents was getting at the issue of faithfulness and being wise and bearing fruit unto the master at his return. 
So those two parables focused on readiness, preparedness, opportunity, faithfulness, bearing fruit, as we think about Jesus returning, not only for his church, but especially at the end of the age, at the end of the time of tribulation. So today we come to this passage in verse 31, where he seems to continue, and he brings up sort of a new issue. So in verse 31, it says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. So what is he talking about here? And as you sit and you look at this, some questions kind of come to your mind naturally. When does the Son of Man come in his glory, as he's describing it here? Uh, when, uh, when are all the Gentile nations gathered before him? When does that happen? When will that be? When will he separate the sheep from the goats? And who are the sheep and who are the goats? And then we uh, find that he talks about, as we read further, giving rewards to those on his right, who are the sheep. And yet he also uh, brings judgment and punishment upon those on his left who are the goats. So, so what is all of this talking about? So if you could bring up that first slide, please. This is a slide we looked at a couple of weeks ago as we were talking about uh, the rapture of the church when I did that sort of message in between looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and whatnot, in between in the chapters 24 and 25. And so just to kind of refresh your memory here, um, Jesus was speaking on the left sort of before the, the cross because that hadn't happened yet. But this was what we know from the scriptures would be happening down through time. There would be what we call the church age. And then at the end of the church age, when the church is taken out through the rapture of the church, there will be that seven-year period of time known as the tribulation. And in the middle of that seven-year period of time at the three-and-a-half-year mark, down on the bottom there you see the desecration of the temple and the persecution of the Jews. That is what we call the abomination of desolation, which Jesus said was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And then at the end of the time of the tribulation, that seven-year period, we see Jesus coming back on his horse in great glory. And as he comes back with both the angels and uh, the armies of heaven, we believe we, the church, are a part of that heavenly army that's coming back with him, that's labeled here on this diagram as the glorious appearing. And then uh, he begins to usher in a time called the millennial reign, a thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. So we're going to take some time as we go through the study this morning and look at that. But if you notice there on the bottom right, if you can see that, uh, but sort of right at the point where the tribulation and the millennium meet, the judgment of the nations. And this is a, a, a time when Jesus, this is what he's talking about here this morning, when he, before we enter the time of the millennial reign, a thousand years, Jesus has to sort out who's worthy of entering that millennial period of time. Uh, the great white throne judgment doesn't happen until after the millennium. We'll take a look at that this morning as well. So there's, there's this sort of judging or this sorting out of what he calls the sheep and the goats. So uh, if you would go ahead to that next slide, please. This is a, 
looking at the great white throne judgment on the right and on the left, the judgment of the nations. The judgment of the nations is what we're talking about here. That word nations is actually the word for Gentile. So it's talking about the Gentile nations, not the Jewish nation in particular. And Jesus seems to be judging at the end of the time of the tribulation, those people who have come through the tribulation uh, on how they have treated, uh, how they have handled their relationship with the Jewish people, with the nation of Israel. Now, up to this point in time, here's what's happened. At the time of the rapture of the church, Jesus has taken everyone who was, has believed in Christ, you know, from the beginning of time to that point in time, uh, out to be with him. And so the people who are left to go through the time of the tribulation is the nation of Israel, the time of the tribulation, just to refresh your memory, is a lot of it is focused on the Jewish people and, and allowing his, the, the Jewish people a second opportunity to come back to their Messiah. Because remember, Jesus, when he was on the earth the first time, he kept coming and giving Israel an opportunity to receive him as their Messiah. We looked at those passages in Luke and Matthew where Jesus was heartbroken as he came into the city on the day of the triumphal entry. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, if you had only known this your day. And yet they rejected him through the crucifixion. And then we know as we, we go through the book of Acts, we see that the gospel initially went to the, to the Jews first. And remember in, in Acts chapters 1 and 2, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. So the gospel was meant for all, but it first went to the Jew. And Paul, of course, had it as one of his trademarks. Uh, he said many times in his writings, I come and I bring the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Paul would go when he went to a city. He would go to where? To the, to the tabernacle first, to, to the uh, synagogue. I couldn't think of the word. And he would come and bring the gospel to his brothers. And then he would take it out to the Gentile nation. And so now here we are at the end of the time of the tribulation, and those people who were the tribulation saints who made it through the tribulation, who didn't die, which will be few, uh, they are being brought into uh, Jesus's presence here. And those who had died during the time of the tribulation, they are being brought also to be with Jesus. And those who uh, escaped or came through the tribulation, but they were not believers in Christ, they also are being judged. Because when Jesus sets up his millennial reign, and we'll point you to scriptures to go through that, uh, at that point in time, the only people who will be in the millennial kingdom will be those who are believers in Christ. Doesn't that make sense? He, Jesus wouldn't have people in his millennial kingdom who are not believers, who, who have not been saved. And so that's sort of the idea behind all of this and this uh, here just kind of takes the passage that we read on the left, verse 31, 32, 33, etc., and breaks it down and shows how the, uh, the judgment is broken out. So verse 31, it takes place at the beginning of the kingdom reign. Christ will judge seated on the Davidic throne, verse 31. The nations will be divided for the judgment. The nations will be separated like sheep from goats. The righteous will inherit the kingdom. The basis of the judgment in the, the latter part, 35 through 44, is how the nations treated the Jews. And then in verse 41 and 46, the living unrighteous will be slain. They will be judged before this throne. 
So let's turn our attention back. Thank you. You can take that down now. To verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come you, these are the sheep, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, and notice that phrase, my brethren, you did it to me. So Jesus was not just talking about those who were believers, Jewish or Gentile. He's talking specifically about his Jewish brethren, those whom he loved and cared about. Something not to be missed here as we look at the four Gospels is that Matthew is the only one who gives us an account of this particular issue, what we call the judgment of the Gentile nations. Each of the Gospels, to remind you, have sort of a different purpose. They were written by a different person. Matthew, of course, also surnamed Levi, was a tax collector. He was a Jew. He was very familiar with Jewish ways and customs. And Levi seems to be very, very concerned in his gospel of presenting the Jewish Jesus to the Jewish people as their king, as their Messiah. When we look at the other gospel writers, John Mark, who wrote uh, the gospel of Mark, was sort of a penman for the apostle Peter. So in many ways, the gospel of Mark is sort of Peter's gospel, uh, with through through Mark's pen, Luke, of course, was a a physician, and he was highly trained and uh, respected. And he uh, took down chronicles and events, and he went backwards and and looked at uh, all of the uh, sort of like a journalist would, and looked at all the life of Jesus and put it together in that way. The Gospel of Mark focuses very much on Jesus, the servant, and how quickly Jesus moved. Uh, Mark uses the word immediately quite a bit. And then when we come to Luke, Luke focuses on the humanity of Jesus, and he focuses on the phrase, the Son of Man, very frequently. And then John wrote his gospel near the end of the first century, partly to combat the heresy of Gnosticism, but also to focus very much on the the person and the work of Jesus, to focus on him as the Lord, as the King And the gospel writers each had sort of a different audience and a different purpose. Matthew was the the most distinctly Jewish. So it makes sense that he is presenting here these things that Jesus said specifically toward his brothers, the Jewish people. And this makes so much sense because all throughout the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham, didn't God say that I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you? The Lord cared specifically about how people and nations would think about and look toward and act and interact with the nation of Israel. If we fast forward to our present day, what is the current relationship of the world to Israel? Isn't the world pretty much 
uh, setting itself up to uh, oppose and to attack Israel? Aren't they doing that at any time? I mean, in recent days, hasn't there been things in the news where um, there could be a potential skirmish between Israel and Turkey, and then Syria has come and said, we're going to back Turkey, and and we'll be there, uh, we'll have their back if anything happens with Israel. If anything happens in the Middle East where someone provokes and attacks Israel, such as the Palestinians, immediately someone says they were provoked and that their attack was justified. And if Israel retaliates to defend themselves, they're called out as saying, hey, you're causing a problem. You're attacking and killing innocent people. And they never report on what happened when the attack came against the Israelites. We're never told what happened with their women and children and how many people were killed and all that. We're always told for the other side for what happened and how many women and children and those kinds of things, how many civilian targets were were struck. And so this has always been the case. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 talk to us about God's heart for the nation of Israel. So Jesus is taking all of this and sort of wrapping it up in a bow And he's saying here in verse 40, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now, I think he's specifically talking about during the time of the tribulation, how did people in general, the Gentiles, treat and interact with the Jews as they went through this intensely uh, uh, skirmish, persecuted time where there was anything but peace on the earth? As God poured out his wrath not on his people, but on the, the, the unbelieving world that is hostile toward God. And they continued, of course, to be hostile toward the Jewish brethren. And to all of those who became believers during the time of the tribulation, and we believe by everything we know and have read, that many Jews will come to Christ during this time. And they will refuse to take the mark of the beast. So when we read this language here that says, you know, I was naked and you clothed me and uh, you visited me and I was in prison, this is speaking of how they were treated. But as we read this, and we know that it specifically applies to the time of the tribulation, we also uh, can look at this and kind of zoom out a bit, take a bigger look at the picture, and we can also say that this applies to us, can't we? in terms of how we treat people. There's a beautiful verse in the book of Hebrews that says, and I meant to grab it and I forgot to grab it, but you've probably read it, and it talks about sometimes we may have entertained angels unaware, right? That we should be aware of who we're interacting with and what we're doing. You know, I was thinking about all this this morning, and of course the uh, AA group meets here seven days a week, so when they were sort of uh, you know, tearing down this morning and breaking up and people were leaving. Uh, I had come out of my office to grab a cup of tea and, uh, you know, usually I'm just saying hello and interacting with some of them. Some of them were uh, developing relationships with. And uh, there was this gentleman sort of standing nearby and he said hello to me. And as I've just learned over time that it's important when someone speaks to you to stop and to look them in the eye. And say hello to them. Because if you just say hey, hi, or whatever, but you don't look at somebody and you don't give them your attention, doesn't that sort of subliminally communicate 
I can't be bothered with you. And as people, don't we want to reach out to people? Don't we, don't we want to build bridges with people? So in, this morning in that moment, as he spoke to me, I was kind of busy doing something. I stopped, you know, you know, by God's grace, I stopped. Hopefully it was the Spirit. And I looked at him and I greeted him and I, I just said hi back to him and how are you today? Well, as I looked at this man, I could tell, you know, he's had a rough life. He looked kind of rough just in general. But in that moment, when I connected with him, my eyes met his eyes. He smiled at me. And a connection was made. And I praise God for that. Who knows where that's going to lead, right? But all of that to say, when we see people, when we interact with people, this is the kind of thing, even though this is speaking sort of specifically about how people treated the Jews during the time of the tribulation, what about us? Do we treat people as if they maybe are an angel in disguise? Do we treat people as if it was the Lord himself and how we interact with them? So when we think about what he said here, Jesus has always talked about, you know, at the beginning of his ministry, Luke chapter 4, I think it was Matthew 4 as well, Jesus, you know, went into the synagogue there and uh, he went and he said, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring the gospel to bring hope to those who are down and out, to the broken, to the poor, to the needy, to the orphans. And hasn't this always been God's heart to reach out to those who are disadvantaged, who, who are broken? And then he says here, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And whenever God talks about these things, and we see it all throughout the scriptures, have you noticed something? And here's the thing. He doesn't look at the object or the person and judge their worthiness, does he? He doesn't look at them and say, you know what? They're probably, if I give them money, they're just going to spend it on alcohol. They're just going to spend it on drugs. He, just, he looks at them and he says, these people are in need. Now, now God might have us be wise about that, of course. Not that we want to throw our money away in, in that respect. But obviously the issue is compassion and reaching out to people, and connecting with them. And Jesus judges people in this situation, not so much on works per se, we'll talk about that in a moment, Just, but if listen, if we're believers, we're changed people, aren't we? I mean, that's the definition. We are changed people. We have come to the Lord, we've confessed our sin, we've acknowledged that Jesus is Lord. And the scriptures are replete with statements like, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, and it's not of your works. Your works have no bearing, they have no, no merit before the eyes of God, and you know, we can't earn our way to God. There's no way possible. We come to him strictly on the basis of grace and faith. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. But once we have come to Christ, once we have been recipients of that grace and that love and that mercy, once we have repented of our sins and we've asked for forgiveness, something has to happen within us. You see, this is the mark of a believer. That change has come. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. If we are made new then something is different about us. We don't look at people the way we used to. People who are bothersome, people who are sitting on the corner, you know, with their sign, hey, homeless help, 
You know, we oh yeah, whatever, I can't be bothered with them. And we all do that. I, I indict myself with this, by the way. But God wants us to have his heart. He wants us to have his eyes. And so Jesus says here, speaking of these folks, again, separating people out as they enter the millennial kingdom, the king will answer and say to them assuredly, verse 40, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So we must be aware, we must be careful with how we deal with people in the name of the Lord. Just as the beautiful verse in Colossians chapter 3 says, uh, you know, speaking of our work and our service in the public sector, uh, whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord rather than unto man. Why? Because people are watching, aren't they? Don't people watch how we do our job? Don't they watch our attitude? Don't they listen to the words that come from our mouths? And let me take an opportunity as a public service announcement right now to say, if you're a believer in Christ and the Spirit of God is within you, swear words should not be a part of your language. Colorful language, as some people like to call it, or when people say, hey, pardon my French, uh, to excuse their swearing, that should not be, these should not be words that mark who we are as believers in Christ. You know the proverbial, you hit your thumb with the hammer and you miss the nail? What's the first word that comes out of your mouth? That's what Jesus said. Hey, the, the words that come across our tongue are, reveal what's in our heart. Not that we're perfect, but we should, we're on a journey, right? It's progress towards sanctification. But these are the things that people see and hear, and they, they are a witness to the world around us. So those were the sheep. Then moving into the goats here in verse 41, these are the people who, who did not... Uh, come to faith in Christ. They, they've sort of blown their last opportunity. And listen, uh, this, is, this kind of flies in the face of where our culture is today, right? You know how it is with children's sports. Everybody gets a trophy, a participation trophy. Nobody did bad. Everybody did good. Well, that's not the way it is in the scriptures, is it? There is a time coming, and it's not pleasant. And these are not things that we as pastors like to talk about. But There is a time when God says enough, when time is up, pencils down, exams over. And that's what's happening here. We've come to a point in time where judgment is being rendered. Judgment has been poured out on the earth through all the different phases of the time of the tribulation. Now he comes to a time at the end of the tribulation where Jesus calls everybody to attention. Verse 41, then he will say to those on the left, that's the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, notice, prepared for the devil and his angels. Something important for us to stop and consider. Hell was not prepared for humans. Hell was not created or invented for mankind. It was created for the devil and his angels. Now, you know how people like to say, and they're questioning, they like to set up a construct. How could a good God... You know, a righteous God send, you know, people, good people especially, to hell. Well, there's a lot of answers to that question. First of all, the scripture is very clear. There is none good, no, not one. The fool has said it in his heart, there is no God. But we also know that God didn't create hell for men. But now we've come to a point in time, and this is the tragedy of all of creation, that mankind would be so swollen in our pride that we would refuse the goodness of God. You see, the cross is for everybody. The gospel is for everybody. 
The blood of Christ was efficient and efficacious. These are words theologians like to use for everybody. In other words, one drop of the blood of Christ is good enough for the sin of the whole world. And God has made it available to everyone. And the scriptures tell us that by the time our life is over as individuals, we will have had opportunity at some point along the way to hear the gospel. An opportunity will have presented to us to believe in and trust in Christ. And if we've exited stage left at the end of our life and we didn't come to faith in Christ, then we will stand one day before him and give an account for that decision to not follow him. You see, God doesn't send people to hell. We send ourselves there by our rejection of God. God's heart, as he says in, the, in, in his, uh, the letters of Peter, is that none should perish, but all should come to faith in the knowledge of the Lord. That's God's heart for people. Now we come to a point in human history here at the end of chapter 25. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, if it was prepared for the devil and his angels who rebelled against the Lord, remember Satan said, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will rise up and become like the Most High. I will have people worship me. I will be God. When he walks into the temple at that midpoint of the tribulation and proclaims to the world, worship me, I am the one true and living God. And he draws people away after himself. God has prepared now hell for the devil and his angels because the devil and his angels have deceived people for, his, for all of eternity, for all of the time that the earth has been in existence. And the devil and his angels have got a place prepared for them that no human should ever see. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. You see, this is a picture of the unregenerate heart of the person who's never been touched through faith and grace by the love of Christ. And so these people, during the time of the tribulation, ignored the Jews. And much as in our modern day, if we look back to the time of the Holocaust and World War II with Hitler and all of that, and we see how many Jews were killed and how mercilessly they were treated. It's going to be as bad or worse during the time of the tribulation. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Jesus is saying, you treated my people in this way and, and you did it as if you were doing it unto me. Jesus is saying, how you treat my people, I take it personally. That's what he's saying here. Then they will answer him saying, oh, well, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? See, the first time with the sheep, when they said it, they were like, oh, Lord, when do we not see you like that? I mean, you know, you can almost hear their attitude was like, oh, we missed it. You came to our house in the form of an angel and we missed it. Oh, I wish I had. And here their attitude is like, yeah, when did I ever see you? Like, when did I ever have an opportunity to minister? You know, as if, hey, you know what? It was a trick question. You deceived me, Lord. You can hear their attitude, right? Just sort of built up in there. And they will say, you know, when, when did these things happen, Lord? As if they're saying, you know, when did we not minister to you? When were we ever given that opportunity? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away 
into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, these are very similar things to what we read earlier many weeks ago in Matthew chapter 13. I'd like to take a moment and have you turn back with me to Matthew chapter 13. And as you turn there, you may remember in Matthew 13, that's the parable of the sower and the soils. And as that chapter started out, it talked about um, a sower went out to sow seed, and then Jesus went on to explain that parable, uh, that the sower was uh, you know, God himself, and, and through us, sowing the seed of the word. The soil was the soil of men's hearts. And then he gave four different ways that people tend to respond to the gospel, respond to the truth of God's word. Then as he went on in chapter 13, he told other parables. And when he came to verse 24, he told a parable of the wheat and the tares. Now, this is not exactly comparable to what we have just read with respect to the sheep and the goats, but there are a lot of similarities. And I wanted to go back and review it this morning. So in verse 24 of Matthew 13, another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now this happened, has happened throughout the church age, and it will happen during the time of the tribulation. The gospel will be shared during the time of the tribulation. Uh, Matthew 13, 25, But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares, which is fake wheat? Then he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servants said, Do you want us to go and to gather them up? And he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. In other words, their roots have become commingled in the ground. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the, same, at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now that picture sounds very similar to what we've just talked about here, right? Fast forward down to verse 36 where Jesus in private explains the meaning of this to his disciples. So Matthew thirteen thirty-six. then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. Those two things are the same as the parable of the soils. Uh, The good seeds in this case are not the word of God. It's the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are all the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness. And will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I think there's a lot of parallelism with this parable to what we've just read. Because in verse 43, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. 
as we enter the millennial kingdom, Jesus brings in with him those who will shine forth as the righteousness of the Son. Now, there's a, a few things to keep in perspective here, and I want you to turn now back the other direction toward the end of your Bible to uh, Revelation chapter 19. We're getting a little exercise in this morning, sword drills. So in Revelation chapter 19, <clears throat> we have this uh, where Christ is coming on the white horse. This is the time of Armageddon. So this is where Jesus is coming back to the earth at the time, at the end of the tribulation. And we don't know exactly when and how it's, he's going to do this judgment of the nations. But when he comes back, you know, some scholars think it'll be just right before he comes back on the horse, he'll do this judgment of the nations. And it might be during that time or, or, or maybe just after the battle of Armageddon. And those details aren't given to us. You know, we'd like to know those things, but they're not given to us. But at the time... When Jesus comes back, his second coming, we find it recorded here in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, so read along with me. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now notice this description is the armies of heaven, and we believe this is a mix of the holy angels and us, the church, the saints who are coming back with him. Now verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. So remember in... Matthew 26 here, he's judging the nations. He should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness uh, and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then as we read on there, the beast and his armies are defeated. So Jesus comes back at this point uh, Revelation 19, 11 through 16, this is the battle of Armageddon. This is his second coming that he prophesied of in Matthew 24 and 25. During this time, sometime before, during, or after, he commits this judgment against the nations. He separates the sheep from the goats. He sorts out those who came through the tri tribulation. He, he judges people. He judges the Gentile nations and how they've treated his people. And then we go through this time called the millennial reign of Christ. Um, and you, as you read on in chapter uh, 20, uh, you'll see that there. We're not going to go through that this morning, but we're going to come down to chapter 20, verse 11. So this is after the time of the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ. And this is what we call the great white throne judgment. So what's happened along the way is this. We as believers... When we were raptured to be taken to be in heaven with Christ, sometime during that time while we're up there with him and the tribulation is breaking loose on earth, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5 talks about uh, the Bema seat of Christ. 
where we go before Christ. It's also called the judgment seat of Christ, but it's the judgment seat where we receive rewards. Bema is the seat that was used to describe in the Olympic Games where you would go before the judge and receive first place and second place and third place and so on. So we will have already been in heaven as the church. We've gone before the Bema seat of Christ. He's handed out rewards to those of us who believe in him. While we've been in heaven with him, the time of the tribulation takes place on the earth. We come to the end of the time of the tribulation. He comes back with us as a part of his army, and he takes uh, captive uh, Satan and all of his evil emissaries. He judges the nations, and he sort of cleans house and gets ready for that thousand-year reign of Christ. At the end of that time, he now does this one final judgment, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. These are the people who don't know Christ, who never trusted in him. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. A tragic time, something we don't like to think about, but you see it's coming. And the reason we need to know about these things is this. We need to have a sense of urgency. That's what we've been talking about here through Matthew 24 and 25. We need to be prepared. We need to be like those virgins looking for the coming of our Lord. Now, I want to close with something, go on a little bit further into chapter 21. And as you read down in chapter 21, this is where we're coming into the new heaven and the new earth and all things are made new. And you can see there in chapter 21, verse 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Don't we all long for that? And then as we read on, we come to this point here in verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then after that comes the new Jerusalem and the city of God. Why did I share that with you? I share that with you because what strikes me about verse 8, and as we read it, we look at it and we say, well, yeah, it kind of makes sense that this is kind of the categories of people who haven't believed in Christ, who have ended up in this place where they're now being judged because they never believed in Christ. But notice that first one there, but the cowardly, the unbelieving. Uh, The rest of that list we can understand, but that word cowardly, you know, that catches my attention. It's used only three times, this word, in the Bible, Matthew 8, Mark 4, and Revelation 21 here. And here's what it means. Cowardly means fearful, 
afraid, timid, faithless. Uh, as you read in the Bible dictionaries, a synonym for this would be faint-hearted with a small soul and little-spirited. Why do I share this? Because I think the primary problem we have in the church today, the church at large, capital C, is fear. I'm not putting that in the same category as the fear that casts someone into hell, but I want you to understand something, that fear is antithetical to faith. Fear is something that God frowns upon. He describes it here in the category of people who are cast into everlasting darkness. Now Jesus said, I just want to share a few things with you. Matthew chapter 10. Therefore do not fear them. This is people who would bring persecution. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. In other words, God will deal with those who bring persecution. God will deal with the bullies. Whatever I tell you, Matthew 10, 27, in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. As I read this, I think of you and I sitting alone with our Bible, spending time with God and he's ministering to us. Or we come and spend time as believers in church and God speaks to us. And Jesus says, whatever I speak to you, you turn around and you speak it out there. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. What can they do to you? The worst thing anybody can do to you is kill you, which catapults you right into the presence of God, doesn't it? And isn't that a better situation than what we have here? Or do we love life so much that we don't want to be with Jesus? You see, we've got to question, we've got to bring these things into the light and deal with them. We've got to lay our fear on the table and face up to it. He goes on and he says, Verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Listen to this. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Romans chapter 10, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Confessing publicly. Romans 14, 10 um, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. In other words, we are going to stand before God one day and be either willingly given the opportunity or forced to kneel and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we can confess it in here, where it's safe, and I can confess it in the, the privateness of my prayer closet, can I not confess it out there in public? Yesterday, I was sitting in a Starbucks, uh, not actually around here, I was running an errand, and I'd stopped to study for a few hours. And as I walked in and sat down, there were these three ladies sitting there. Guess what they were doing? They were having a Bible study. And it was amazing. It was so apparent to me. I just I eavesdropped for a few minutes, I confess. But there was these two older ladies 
shepherding this younger lady who I'm guessing she probably was a new believer. And I was just listening to them and my heart was so warmed. And here they are in Starbucks. Their Bibles are open like this. And I'm looking and I can, you know, they're all underlined and highlighted. And I'm like, yes, praise God for that. We should not be ashamed. We should be doing these things in the light. Therefore, God also, uh, Philippians chapter 2, has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Romans 15, to close with this morning. Here's what Romans 15 says, verse 8. And I think this kind of brings it all together. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, the Jews, for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this reason I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, with the Jews. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse and he um, who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him, the Gentiles shall hope. Romans fifteen thirteen. now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus begins that process of judgment there at the end of the time of the tribulation by judging the nations. He sorts out the sheep from the goats. He sets up his thousand-year reign on the earth. And at the end of that thousand-year reign, he casts Satan into hell once and for all, and he ties it up with a big old chain. And that's it, once and for all. And then we enter the millennial kingdom after the great white throne, excuse me, the, the new Jerusalem, the, the heavenly city, to be with God forever and ever after the great white throne judgment. You see, folks, we need to know these things. That's what's ahead. That's our future. That's what's coming. But we want to be prepared. We want to know these things. Because when we see the stuff like I shared with you in the news happening around us, as crazy it is, as terrible as it is, as sad as it is, We look up, Romans uh, 13, for our redemption draws nigh. So starting next week, uh, chapter 26, we'll be, you know, read ahead. We'll be dealing with Judas, the Lord's table, the betrayal of Jesus, Jesus getting ready to go to the cross for these next few weeks. And then we'll have Christmas and New Year's in the middle of there. And we'll come back in January and wrap up Matthew. So I'm looking forward to what lies ahead. But the Lord wants to stir us up as his church. He doesn't want us to be sitting on the sideline and just waiting for somebody else, you know, who's an evangelist or whatever, to go out there and share the gospel. You know, we're all called. All of his God's people are called to be witnesses. And so I share that part at the end there about fear because I think that's the greatest obstacle in the church at large today is people are fearful of speaking the name of Jesus. And let's not be fearful. Let's not hide under a rock. Listen, if we've been bought by the most precious thing in the world, by the blood of Christ, which is eternally significant for the universe, and we've been marked by faith, we've been marked by Jesus Christ, we we have his mark on us somewhere. We're told in the book of Revelation that we do have a mark on us for him. 
And that will stand in contrast to the mark of the beast that will come in Revelation chapter 13, but we'll stand apart. Let us stand apart now. Listen, the clock's ticking. The days are passing. I'm getting older. My birthday's coming up. Some of you have had birthdays. Happy birthday, by the way, to those of you who just had birthdays. But every time a birthday comes, doesn't at least for me, it's a marker. I'm going to be 62. I'm like, are you kidding me? What happened? How did we get here so fast? Time's passing. The Lord's going to come, and we're going to stand before him. And I hope we stand before him in joy. And we're ready to hear those words as we talked about last week. Enter into the joy of thy master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that what we want to hear? It's not about works. Works come as a result of faith. Faith produces works. That's what James says. We're looking forward to taking as many people with us as we can. And keep praying for your unsaved friends and family. Keep praying that God would have mercy and that they, their, the scales would fall from their eyes and that they would turn to Christ. Don't underestimate the power of your prayer. Amen. Lord, we love you. Thank you. We bless you this morning. Thank you for what you've shared with us. And as we sing this closing song, Lord, we just, we just honor you. And we ask you, Lord, to stir us up and to strip away the stuff that keeps us from ministering from being your witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts. Lord, remove from us fear, replace it with faith. Renew our hope and our joy, Lord, and our confidence. We don't have to be uh, Billy Graham or some other kind of an evangelist, Lord. We, we just want to be plain old me, but filled with the Spirit me, because we know you give us power. Your word give us, gives us strength and confidence and hope. And so, Lord, lead us into life everlasting. And may we, just along the way, Lord, share your love and your hope with others around us, especially now, Lord, especially at Christmas, when we celebrate that you came to this earth for us, to be for us everything we could never be. You came to become the holy sacrifice that would prepare the way that we could have a relationship with the Father. And by your grace and by your love and your mercy and your, your favor toward us, Lord, we have a relationship with you. Now, if there's any here this morning who do not know you, Lord, let this be the time where they turn to you and they say, Lord, I've, I've blown it, I've messed up, but I'm coming to you. Lord, come into my life. Change me, make me new. And Lord, we know that you will do that. You are faithful. You are true. And if you've done that this morning, then know that Jesus has come into your life and forgiven you. That you are now a person who belongs to him. You are his son or his daughter. You are covered by the blood of the lamb. You, he looks at you now as righteous and holy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.